Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. And as you're turning, let me give to you a couple of important announcements. Uh, Number one, right after this service, for those of you who are pretty new with us, who are looking to make some initial connections and would be willing to help us connect some names with faces, we are having our first ever uh, pizza with the pastors. And so an opportunity for those of you who are new to learn some names and faces of ministry staff and uh, so if, if that's you today and you're counting on having some pizza with us, just come hang out here at the front of the sanctuary after the service, and we will direct you from there. Um, next, one of the things I deeply appreciate about FBC is our commitment to safety for you and for your family. And so this coming Wednesday, we're having an emergency preparation training for all volunteers, an opportunity for us to be uh, just trained and gain more knowledge of, hey, when stuff happens, like has happened on Maui, it's like, what what do we do, you know, Uh, and so we can be prepared. So that's this coming Wednesday, August 16th at 6 p.m. And then finally, next Sunday night is our next opportunity to uh, show up at our adopted school, Franklin Elementary, just up the hill from here, and for us to prayer walk that campus, to bathe it in prayer on the eve of a a brand new school year. So uh, please, please, please plan on coming and joining us at a very simple but profound thing as we pray over the Franklin campus. Title for today's sermon, as you probably have seen by now, is Jesus is a dog lover. Where are my dog lovers? Raise them high, okay? Um, just for you, I had to share some pictures of my, uh, my pug. So that's Libby when she was a puppy. This is Libby, who's a spoiled queen of the house that she is now. And uh, I'll show you Coco a little bit later so she doesn't feel left out. But um, you might be wondering, hey, what's that got to do with the Bible and today's sermon? We're going to show you in just a moment. And so we are going to dive into the text. I'm going to ask you to stand one more time out of reverence for God's word as I read Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. It says, And from there Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the little children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your help right now. Um, First, I ask for your help in proclaiming your truth, proclaiming your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be the preacher this morning. I pray, God, for um, all of us as we listen to your word, that we would um, hear it not just with our ears, but with our hearts. And uh, may we take it to heart, and may we obey what it is that your Spirit leads us to do. So God, in this moment, clear away the distractions and help us to, to focus in 
on you and your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So if you remember, last week was about pigs, and this week is about pugs, right? Or more accurately, dogs in general. There's, there's uh, Coco and Oliver Beauty. And yes, they do have freakishly long tongues. I know that already. You don't need to say it. Um, and the premise today, again, is that Jesus is a dog lover. The text breaks down into two main parts. We have a Gentile woman's request, and then we have a gentle Savior's response. A Gentile woman's request and a gentle Savior's response. So let's look at the first, a Gentile woman's respect. Verse 24 says, And from there, from there, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. So from there refers to the city of Capernaum, and it's there in the red box. As we know, this has been the headquarters of Jesus and his disciples during the Galilean days of ministry. And in that place, the ministry has been intense and it has been exhausting, largely because the Jewish religious authorities have shown up to make Jesus's life really, really difficult. They come to him with all kinds of accusations, all kinds of challenges, all kinds of opposition. And so we've reached a point for Jesus and his disciples, another point where they need some rest. And as we've seen throughout the book of Mark, Jesus is all about these regular rhythms of intense ministry, but then purposeful rest. Intense ministry and then purposeful rest. And so the whole idea of going to Phoenicia, to Tyre, the idea was to go there to rest. And so he makes the 30-mile trip to Tyre. Now we might say, hey, why go there of all places? Well, specifically, Tyre was a very pagan territory, um, a place where no self-respecting Jew would want to be found even dead. Um, so if you're one of the Jewish religious authorities, are you going to go to Tyre? No authorities. It would be a good place to rest. But once again, didn't work out quite that way. For in the second half of verse 24, it says, yet he could not be hidden. And I love that phrase. It might be my favorite phrase in the entire text. He could not be hidden. You see, Jesus is so awesome so glorious, so majestic, that he just shines brightly wherever he's present. He just can't help it. In church, that's the way it's supposed to be in our lives. If we would but surrender fully to him and be filled to overflowing with his Holy Spirit, guess what? Jesus cannot remain hidden. You will have a witness that comes so very naturally if you would but surrender yourself to him completely and be filled with his Spirit to overflowing. He will be who he is in all of his glory, his majesty, his awesomeness. He will be that shining brightly through us for all to see. And here's the, here's the, the real point. That is, in fact, Jesus' purpose for your life. That's why you exist. That's why you are on the face of the planet. He created you to know him and to make him known. So that whatever station, in whatever station you find yourself in life, you become that conduit of the glory and majesty and awesomeness for Jesus coming bubbling over for others to see. Again, reinforcing that point, he can't be hidden. He can't be hidden. And so I ask you the question, how are you doing with that? How, if the purpose for which God created you is to know him and make him known, how are you doing with that? We get, we get so distracted with all kinds of other secondary purposes and things that we get immersed in, and 
at the end of the day, it's very simple. To know him and to make him known. Verse 25. But immediately, as Jesus is going for this rest, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, a demon, heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. This woman is so desperate. She is so desperate. Likely she has tried all kinds of things, pagan superstitions, offerings to her idols to get rid of the demon that is plugging her daughter. And to this point, nothing has worked. She is a desperate, desperate woman. And she broke all the rules in her desperation. She ran right through the man-made barriers of the day and fell at the feet of Jesus, which might cause us to say, well, wait, what are these man-made barriers that were in this woman's way? Well, first was her gender, her gender. This, this, at that time, in that culture, it was a man's world where women were considered to be second class at best. And according to Jewish law, a rabbi was not supposed to have any direct contact with a woman. And yet, here she is, the woman at the very feet of the Jewish rabbi, Jesus. The second man-made barrier that Jesus, before Jesus was her ethnicity, her ethnicity. She was a Gentile, which means she was not a Jew. And as we have seen in past weeks, the Jews viewed Gentiles to be unclean, so much so that if they went to the market and a Jew bumped into a Gentile, they would come home and engage in all kinds of elaborate ceremonial washing to, to get rid of all those Gentile cooties and to make themselves you know, clean again from Gentile defilement. And yet, here she is, an unclean Gentile woman at the very feet of the Jewish rabbi, Jesus. The third man-made barrier to Jesus was her nationality. Specifically, she was a Syrophoenician. What does that mean? Well, let's go back to the map for a second. Again, Phoenicia being that region up by the Mediterranean Sea on the left-hand side. And the principal cities of that region were Tyre and Sidon, which if you know your Old Testament history, these cities were historically sworn enemies of the Israelites. You might remember that it was um, also the, the region was a home for King Ahab and Jezebel. And so you know that, again, there's a lot of strife between this region and the Jews. And as one commentator said, Tyre probably represented the most extreme expression of paganism, both actually and symbolically, that a Jew could expect to encounter. And yet, this is where Jesus intentionally, strategically goes. So here we are in the region of Tyre and Sidon, where women were, in the eyes of the Jew, women were low class, Gentiles were impure, and the Syrophoenicians were scum of the earth, sworn enemies, and yet here she is, a Gentile Syrophoenician woman at the very feet of the Jewish rabbi Jesus, a desperate mother interceding on behalf of her demonized daughter. She ran right through those man-made barriers to Jesus. And so, that is the first section of our text, a Gentile woman's request.
In part two, we have a gentle Savior's response. How's Jesus going to deal with this? Well, we see, first of all, in verse 27, And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, did Jesus just say what I think he just said? Did he just call this woman a dog? Well, it doesn't, if, if that's true, it doesn't seem very Jesus-like, does it? From a Jewish perspective, it would have been very appropriate for Jesus to do this because in that day, Jews actually referred to Gentiles as dogs, the kind of dogs that are like this, that roam the streets as dirty, scavenging mongrels. And, but truth be told, this is not what Jesus was saying at all. For the word he uses here for dog in the Greek is not the derogatory term that Jews would typically use of Gentiles. Rather, Jesus actually uses the term that refers to the small, beloved household pet. It's the last one, I promise, okay? Um, Just wait till I have grandkids, though, okay? You're going to get a heavy dose of that. So what Jesus is doing here is he's answering the Gentile woman's request with a parable. And you all know about parables. A parable is an earthly story with a spiritual meaning. An earthly story with a spiritual meaning. And the the characters and elements of a parable, they are symbolic. Um, They represent spiritual truths. And so let's look at each of the elements in this short parable and see what they symbolize, what Jesus is trying to say. So we go back to verse 27. He said to her, Let the children be fed first. Who or what do the children represent in this short parable? They represent the Jews, God's chosen, special people. And I know that as we've been studying the the book of Mark and we see, man, it seems like Chad has a lot of negative things to say about the Jews. And it's not that Chad has a lot of negative things to say about the Jews. It's the book of Mark um, telling truthfully the status of the Jews and their relationship to Jesus. Truth be known, Jesus is a Jew. Truth be known, God still has a very special place and program for the Jews. And the Jews are still going to play a very significant role in God's program and plan for all of creation. But at this particular point in time in the history of the Jews, they're antagonistic to Jesus. The scriptures tell us Jesus came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. And so there's this tension of, oh, the Jews, they're still God's beloved, special, chosen people, but they're not acting like it very well right now. What is the children's bread symbolize in this verse, in this parable? What is that? I think it represents God's blessings, God's ministry as offered to the Jews. But listen carefully, all right? This is the crux of the issue here. God's purpose for the Jews has always been for them to pass on God's blessing to all peoples. And the greatest of these blessings is the knowledge of God and of salvation. And so this goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, to the character Abraham in Genesis 12. When God was calling him in Genesis 12, God said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, how, how was that to be? Well, oh, I can't even find it now. Oh, and all the batteries are gone. Oh, great. Okay. Um, 
I'm sure uh, the Apostle Paul had this problem too, right? So, um, the, through Abraham, through his offspring, God would create the special people. And the special people, as it says in Isaiah 49.6, God says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So what was Israel meant to be? A light for all the nations, all the nations, including the Gentiles. So again, they were to receive God's blessing and pass it on to all other peoples. Here's the New Testament perspective on this, Romans 1.16. The Apostle Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Then it says, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So what that means is that God gave it, entrusted it first to the Jews. They were to receive the message and then fulfill their purpose of passing it on to all the other nations. So that's what it means, first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. So once again, God's purpose for the Jews has always been for them to pass on God's blessing to all peoples. How did they do in fulfilling that purpose? Not so great. Not so great. Instead of passing the blessing on to all peoples, they tended to hoard the blessing for themselves, and they even despised the other people that they were supposed to pass it on to. If you think back to the Old Testament, who's the prime example of this? We had a, a, a study on this character about two summers ago. Do you remember who? Jonah. When Jonah was called to pass on the blessing of God to people in a foreign land, what did he do? He, he ran the opposite direction. And he refused to pass it on. And so tragically, Jonah became a picture or a symbol of the attitude of the Jews of that day. But church, listen carefully. Don't be, don't be judgmental. Because if we honestly look at ourselves in the mirror, we just might be doing the very same thing. Hoarding God's blessing for ourselves, not passing it on to others. Back to verse 27. He said to her, let the children be fed first. Children are the Jews. For it is not right to take the children's bread, the, the gospel ministry, the blessings of God, and throw it to the dogs. Now, who do the, or what do the dogs symbolize? The Gentiles. Non-Jews, like you and me. Now, how do you think the woman felt based upon this answer from Jesus? Do you think she felt encouraged or discouraged? I think she was hopeful. I think she actually felt encouraged. Now, why would I say that? Well, because, again, Jesus didn't call her that dirty scavenger mongrel dog. That's not the term that he used. Rather, he used that term for the beloved house pet. And so, so, so maybe from her perspective, just maybe there's this little glimmer of hope, an open door, just open a crack that might show that the Savior has something to give to her, which prompted her response in verse 28. She answered him, yes, Lord, which is always a good response, by the way. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So, so what she does is she takes this glimmer of hope that Jesus has given her and she runs with it, saying essentially this, okay, if I'm like a beloved household pet, those pets at least get the leftovers, don't they? And they at least get some provision for their need 
Jesus, I'm honored to be in that lowly position, eager for whatever you might see fit to give me. Which shows us this humble yet bold response from this woman, a response that absolutely captured the heart of Jesus. For he replies this way in verse 29, he says, For this statement you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter, and she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. All right, so we want to highlight that phrase for this statement. What was it specifically about this statement that the woman made that so moved the heart of Jesus to act on her behalf? Well, let's look at the statement in great detail by asking this question, and this moves us into the application part of the sermon. How is this woman an example of how we are to pray? Because I think she becomes the prototype for what our prayers should look like. How is this woman an example of how we are to pray, of how we are to bring our requests to Jesus. And to answer this question completely, we're going to do one additional step, which is to bring Matthew's gospel into play, his account of the story from Matthew 15, 21 through 28. And the first thing that we learn about prayer as we harmonize these two passages is, number one, we are to pray with humility. We are to pray with humility, which isn't rocket science. It's probably not a new truth, but it's one of those truths that's so very profound and powerful that we need to come back to it time and time again. How did this woman come to Jesus? What was her physical posture? She was on her knees. She was on her knees. She bowed before him. Now, you can, obviously, you can pray in any kind of physical posture, but there is something about the posture of the heart which must always kneel before the throne of God. And also, not only was she on her knees, but she was willing to be counted as what? A dog. A dog. In Matthew's gospel, her words are, have mercy on me, O Lord. That's profound. It's important because what it tells us is that she puts everybody in their rightful place. Um, Someone who needs mercy from someone else is down here. Someone who is declared to be Lord is up here. And so it is when we pray. We don't come to Jesus as equals. He is Lord. We are not. We need his mercy. And so this all illustrates the humility with which we must come to Jesus just as she did. She clearly recognizes and communicates her lowly position as a dog and his exalted position as Lord. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit means to acknowledge, I am nothing without Jesus. I can do nothing without Jesus. It is all about Jesus and not about me. And so this woman demonstrates again for us what it is to be poor in spirit. Likewise, it must be the foundation of how we come to Jesus in prayer. Next, After we pray with humility, we must pray with perseverance. We must pray with perseverance. It's interesting, if you read Matthew's account in Matthew 15, do you know how Jesus initially responded to the woman's cry? He said nothing. He was silent. In fact, Matthew 15.23 says, He did not answer her a word. Have you been there? Crickets? It's like... He's not saying anything. You're in good company. 
I think this happens a lot, and I think it's a very strategic thing that God does in our lives. Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus sometimes respond with silence when we pray? I think in part it is to test us and to grow us. I think it's to see whether or not we are serious in our crying out to him or are we just dabbling. Ever dabbled in prayer? If I'm honest, I think I dabble in prayer a lot. I give token prayers. I know I'm supposed to pray, so I go through the motions at least of praying. But when God examines my heart, are you serious, Chad? I think the silence of Jesus when we pray at times is for the purpose of establishing whether or not we are serious. This woman wasn't dabbling, was she? She wasn't messing around. She was deadly serious as demonstrated by her perseverance. In fact, when she was confronted by the silence, Matthew's gospel tells us she kept on asking. She kept on asking. She kept on asking to the point that the disciples said, Jesus, make her stop. We don't want to hear it anymore. Make her stop. She prayed with perseverance. And church, so must we. So must we. Which leads to application point number three, that she shows us that we must pray with boldness. Oh, I love the boldness of this woman. Remember how she smashed through the barriers of her gender, her ethnicity, and her nationality? I I picture her like a tank barreling through a police barricade, like in an action movie. You know, they they put the police cars up there, and then they come barreling through, and it's like they can't contain them. That's what she was like. Nothing was going to stop her from getting to Jesus and presenting her request. She was bold and are coming, and we must do likewise. Years ago, I read a book entitled Violent Prayer. I love that title, Violent Prayer. It has a lot to say about praying with boldness. And in this particular excerpt that I'm about to share with you, it speaks of prayer in terms of being soldiers on a battlefield and the significance of spiritual warfare in the, in the, the midst of our prayer. So let me share this with you. It says, One of the most effective things that these soldiers can do is call for help. As the camera scans the field, we see one of the living crawling with his head down toward one of the dead. He reaches out for the man's belt and pulls from it a walkie-talkie. Still keeping his head down, he knows what's at stake. If he doesn't, he calls for help. If contact isn't made at first, he must keep trying If headquarters sends reinforcements to another front, and if medical transport isn't available yet, he still doesn't have the option of abandoning communication. He knows he must persist until contact, resources, and direction come through. The battlefield is no place for quitters. He goes on, Christians tend to view prayer as a means toward personal comfort, personal agendas, and personal peace. That's a natural approach, and God in His mercy often answers on such terms. But the bulk of New Testament prayers are about the battle. They're focused on the kingdom of God and all its obstacles. There's a war on, and prayer is the cry from soldiers in the heat of battle who need strategic direction, vital supplies, and more personnel in the field. I'm going to read that one again. There's a war on. And prayer is the cry from soldiers in the heat of battle who need strategic direction, vital supplies, and more personnel in the field. We need help, and getting it isn't a matter of filling out a requisition. 
It involves urgency and anguish and dropping the matter isn't an option. We have to yell into the walkie-talkie in the heat of the moment and at the top of our lungs if we don't pray intensely, boldly, we lose. Lives are at stake. Does that describe your prayer life? Sadly, it doesn't necessarily describe mine. The woman in our story, however, she could most definitely identify with this kind of boldness. And so, how is she an example of how we are to pray? What is it about that? Your statement, Jesus says, we're to pray with humility, to pray with perseverance, and to pray with boldness. And when you add it all up, this is what Jesus had to say to her in the book of Matthew. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Interestingly, there's only one other time in the Gospels that someone is identified as having great faith. Can you think of it? The Roman centurion in Matthew 8, 5 through 13, who was also interceding on behalf of someone else. In both cases, the woman and the centurion, of what ethnic origin are they? They're both Gentiles. And in both cases, Jesus healed at a distance. May we be like them. May we too be people of great faith, as Jesus here describes. Would you pray with me? Father, man, it's personally convicting for me today. Um, I pray that you do a, a work in my heart that would bring my prayer life to a much more bold and persevering and faithful place like this woman. Thank you for the truth of Scripture and how it is relevant today and will be relevant even thousands of years from now. We thank you for your word and how we are able to ground our lives in it and to be convicted by it. God, we are bringing conviction today. Um, may we respond in obedience. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.